Hello and welcome to OECD On The Level. I'm Bill Bilo. We're speaking with Julio Baccio Terracino, Deputy Division Head of the Public Sector Integrity Division of the Directorate for Public Governance. We'll be talking about the role of influence in contributing to a level playing field or distorting it in favor of narrow interests. Welcome, Julio. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Public policy plays an essential role in the distribution of costs and benefits in a society. Just think of tax exemptions, subsidies, government contracts, or public health policies. There are many other examples. These policies directly influence who gets what, and democratic processes strive to distribute these benefits fairly with an eye squarely on the public good. But the stakes can be high regarding policy outcomes, and incentives to influence them can be strong indeed. There's nothing wrong with that. It's all part of democracy. Democracies count on voices to speak up so that robust, representative policy decisions can emerge. Yet the mechanisms of representation can be imperfect and more or less pliable to the pressure of narrow interests applied to its weak points. Strong voices can drown out weaker ones. Coziness between regulators and industries can sidetrack the wider public interest. And people or organizations with deep pockets can determine political futures, influence public perceptions of issues, and even cast doubt on reliable data that citizens need for informed decisions. Julio, a political advertisement has influence, or so certain people hope. Um, An editorial in a newspaper has influence. Everybody seeks to have some kind of influence. At what point does influence cease to be an expression of public opinion and instead distort policy outcomes? Thanks, Bill. Uh, I, I do agree with what you were saying before, and this is the first thing I would like to highlight, that influence is needed. Influence is part of our democratic processes, is how also government learn about uh, innovations, about ideas of different parts of society, different stakeholders. Now, what we are raising is an issue that is increasingly growing, that although influence is needed, however, as in other aspects of our societies, influence is more and more being concentrated in the hands of a few. So when we now, nowadays we talk so much about inequality, well, we could bring this also even to the discussion on who is influencing government, and we have an issue there in which a very few and powerful, let's call it 1%, or even less than 1%, are the ones that have um, more access, for different reasons that we can discuss, more access to influencing government policies. Now, this is one issue. The second issue is the undue influence, which is sort of separate. Um, in the issue of undue influence, we are talking here perhaps of a rather simple you know, bribe, illegal acts, trading in influence, faking um, data, faking evidence. This is something not so new, but more and more, we see it more and more now, even faking think tanks. So all these are more uh, cases of a call of undue influence, which is separate from the concentrated power of influence in the hands of a few. Uh, what about people's voices that aren't present in the policy process, not because they aren't affected by the policy outcomes, but because they you know, lack the ability to participate or maybe the means uh, or even the time? Uh, how do we include their voices in policy so that we have a more balanced outcome? I think this is uh, actually um, um, uh, something we're working on right now at the OECD, which is how we can change from 
um, equality to equity of access. So if you think of uh, many of the policies that governments are putting in place recently, in recent years and currently, and even those policies being promoted by international institutions like the OECD, these I would call are, are policies or, 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 or interventions, if we can call them, uh, more addressed to equality. Basic, basically, let's provide, for example, open data, let's just put data out there, let's allow everybody to access information, so they can influence, they can monitor, they can even hold government into account, as we sometimes say. However, what we see now is that this is not enough. Because if you are, you don't have the means, or, or sometimes the time and interest to do it, as many citizens do in many countries of the world, that's why we are now changing and talking more about equity of access. And this is what we're working on currently at the OECD, how to, again, how to provide a platform for these uh, interested citizens or stakeholders that have an interest in a certain policy, how can they somehow also access the government decision-making process as well as uh, in the same way as those that have the means and, and have done it for so many years. I imagine that some subjects are, are just so complicated that it's really hard to include people and citizens, even if they are going to be influenced by the outcome. I'm thinking of, uh, for example, um, the price of water or power rates, um, where these things are kind of hashed out. I think there's an attempt to make them as transparent as possible. But as a regular citizen, I am not going to have the time to really understand the debate, probably, and therefore be an effective voice. Definitely. This is something that we uh, see more and more and that we argue even many times, I would say, against some of the mainstream insights or knowledge or, or, or recommendations that many international institutions give in the, in, in the sense of let's open up more data, more access to information, more, um, even more open government, which of course this is all needed and very, very important, but it will not solve this issue that you just raised. The issue of the citizen doesn't have the time or interest to, um, yeah, to influence uh, different policies. This is separate from those that are, um, let's say, committed or what we call issue-based organizations, citizens that organize themselves around an issue because it's especially close to them. There we are, we are talking more about NGOs or civil society organizations that they do have um, not as much as a powerful interest, I would say, as the elites, but they do have a, a, an easier way in. That's why we promote uh, work to strengthen what we call the traditional institutions that represent the, in, uh, the interests of citizens. These traditional institutions are actually very, very old, and uh, you perhaps will be surprised. Two of them, the main ones, are political parties. These were meant, and are still meant, to represent the interests of people, the political interests, let's call, of, of people. And the other one is the trade unions. These were designed to represent the interests, the, the economic interests, of people. However, if you look at many of the surveys around the world, these are among the most distrusted institutions in almost every country. Um, because of many reasons, because of corruption, because of the way they are governed, etc. So a lot of the work that we need to put in place now is on strengthening the governance on, of, of these institutions so citizens regain trust in these institutions and they start playing more and more the role that were meant to play and at one, at one time they played and that they still play in many countries. So this is also different from country to country. 
but in we can generalize in many countries this because these institutions has lo have lost uh, uh, legitimacy and trust of citizens we see that citizens turn to other institutions or to what we call the outsider you know the, the and the elect the extremes or they go for extreme visions um, that they feel represent their interests better how can these organizations or institutions uh, become better representative of uh, their members? I think that you're suggesting that those, the, the fact that they're not able to adequately represent their members, people are distrustful of them or turning away from them, whether it's trade unions or, or political parties. Well, the first thing is they need to work uh, much more on their governance, the way they are governed. Many times what happens with political parties is that um, it, there's not, uh, I would say, um, democracy within themselves. So we don't have um, uh, primaries as in many countries do, but in many others they don't. So the candidate that is put uh, forward for election is uh, handpicked by sometimes even one person in the political party. So that of course uh, already starts, I would say, in, with the wrong foot. Then even also the uh, management of the financial resources of the, of the political party. And I would say in trade unions it's the same. Um, sometimes we have, you know, the elections uh, related to the head of the trade union um, are not as transparent or as democratic as they should be, um, and all these are the are, are the issues that are very visible and that again they turn into um, actions by these institutions that sort of reinforce this distrust by uh, their members, the members of these institutions, and by the citizens as a whole. I know that you've done a lot of work on campaign finance and that uh, there's a relationship between, uh, uh, I think, political parties and perhaps trust and the fact that uh, money in certain markets has become such an important factor in political elections and the life of political parties. Um, what, what can be done, if anything, to help curb the role of money in politics? Well, as I said before, in, in relation to influence, uh, money in politics is necessary and is welcome also. Um, however, when we talk about influence, as we were uh, mentioning before, this very highly concentrated um, power in the hands of a few, let's call it interest, vested interests or interest groups, narrow interest groups, these groups have mainly two vehicles to influence um, policymaking. One is a campaign finance, so providing financing to political parties in elect for elections or even between elections, of course. And the other one is the lobbying practices. Now you're referring to the political finance, which, as I said, is welcome and is needed, but what it needs to be is regulated. So many countries regulate it, but still we see many loopholes in the regulations. What we are looking for in terms of political finance is more transparency and more integrity. Transparency, we need to know who is funding who. This is a basic question. So basically what we need to know is more transparency, more data on uh, who is providing funding. And for this, uh, we need to work more on sort of these loopholes that I mentioned. One is, for example, still 40% uh, of OECD countries allow for anonymous donations. So, of course, you, you cannot know who's donating, and therefore there's no transparency of who's funding who. So this is just one example. The second example is also that although in many OECD countries, but not all, foreign um, entities cannot 
provide donations in politi for political parties or for election campaigns, this still happens, and increasingly so, I may say. We have seen recently, and more and more, um, what we could say, cases or even scandals of uh, foreign powers, uh, nations, providing uh, funding to individual candidates or to political parties. So these political parties, instead of defending or promoting the interests of this country and of the citizens, promote those of the foreign interest. So this is also one of the things that we see more and more and uh, that is somehow regulated in countries, but there's still many loopholes around this. So a lot of our work is how to promote this um, increasing transparency in political finance, more scrutiny, how to strengthen the um, mandates and, and resources sometimes and powers of the different entities that exist in all countries in relation to election campaigns and financing, and, and also the scrutiny of, of citizens or interested uh, parties. We talked about the rise of uh, kind of alternative political parties uh, due to a, a perhaps a lack of trust in established political parties. Um, and this is translated to the rise of nationalism. You mentioned earlier that nationalism was the wrong response to a valid problem. Tell me about that. Well, definitely. What I mean, Bill, if you think of almost any issue in the world today, um, any issue of concern to citizens around the world, you will see that is very linked to this issue of influence we are discussing. Unfortunately, not everybody sees it that way, and we still think that sometimes these issues are technical issues. But I dare say the technical aspects of these issues, and let's say even climate change, or what sort of tax policy should we have in a country and even globally, um, uh, the approach to eradicating extreme poverty, if anything, think of any of these issues. It is not so much an issue of um, that we lack the knowledge of what we need to do. We know what we need to do, but we cannot do it because of the influence of the vested interests, those that don't want the system to change. And I, I mean, I also dare to say for valid reasons. I mean, these are their interests. They are fighting for their interests. So I'm not getting into the, I would say, the, the discussion on the substance, but on the form. How are they influencing these vested interests, the policies, in their benefit, furthering inequality, creating this vicious circle in which this, again, let's call it 1%, influence for their benefit. They get more resources so they can influence even more through, again, political finance, lobbying, or, or other ways. And what happens is that the citizens more and more over the years see that the government and the policy making, or let's say just the policies, are not in their public interest, are not in the public interest. So I repeat this issue of public interest because this is actually the key two words uh, that define the whole work that we do in relation to policy making. Policy making should be in the public interest. This is including the legislation and sometimes in the constitution of most countries uh, uh, around the world. But what we see is that this is not happening. And that's why we have this huge distrust of citizens against the mainstream or the traditional parties and, uh, um, as I said, trade unions, but also governments. Now, this is the what I said, the valid question or the valid problem. What has happened is that because of this, what citizens do is turn to the extremes and 
many of these um, new candidates or those that come from um, um, either a new political party or a new coalition or or sort of the the outsider as we call them now they uh, one of the messages or one of the policies they bring in is the nationalism however uh, as i said this is nationalism is the uh, wrong solution to a valid problem and by this i mean the wrong solution because unfortunately whether we like it or not um, globalization is here to stay and it's only going to increase so nationalism is perhaps temporary solution that we can put in place uh, over a couple of years, but it will not change the development of, 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 uh, the, of the world. What kind of tools uh, is the OECD putting in place, or how are you working with countries to overcome these problems, this deficit of representation? There are many things to do, actually. Uh, unfortunately, there's no one solution or even a couple of solutions. The first thing that we've been already working on is on how to limit um, as much as possible, this, um, I would say, overrepresented influence of some small um, groups and interests in society. And this is all the work related to the work we've done on lobbying and political finance, for example. On the other hand, is how we can um, promote and how can governments provide mechanisms to give access to those with less power but valid interests. So this year we're looking at the many ways governments can proactively seek out for the views of those that may be affected by a regulation or by a policy. So we're talking here about issues related to citizen consultation, stakeholder engagement, etc. So what, what are the platforms? And with the new technologies, this is becoming easier and easier. And the third point is what I mentioned earlier, which is how we can strengthen the governance and the legitimacy and the trust of the institutions that traditionally represent the interests of citizens, this is trade unions and political parties. So all this combined, if we add it to a cocktail and we add also a more general issue of integrity in the public sector, which is also something that we work on, we're talking here about issues about the leadership and the integrity of government officials, all this com combined would lead to a decision-making process that would be influenced by the different parties, those that have huge interest, that's valid, but also those that also have huge interest but perhaps not so much access. So listening to everybody, and then it's up to the government to decide what's the best policy and what is the, the policy that would lead uh, or preserve the public interest, as we mentioned earlier. But it's, what we're focusing here much more is on uh, I would say, an equitable decision-making process that is informed in evidence, evidence that is also developed transparently, because I mentioned earlier we have the issue also of uh, think tanks um, that sometimes also represents the views of these powerful interests. We don't only have fake news now, we also have a lot of fake data. So all these are issues that the government is confronting. At the OECD, we are working with uh, governments to support them and provide insights and evidence on the best way to design this decision-making process. Going forward, um, you were mentioning that you may be expanding the forum in which you're inviting people to discuss this issue? Yes, because what we realize also, this is not a new issue. If you look, um, but perhaps more at academic articles, uh, many of the journals on even on economics or political science, uh, even on sociology, etc., there's tons of research that has been done for 20, 30 years or even more on the different place of who is influencing the policy making and the different uh, policies in different countries. So there's tons of case studies. So the idea is to 
build a coalition of all those that have been working or are working and that are interested in this issue. And perhaps as a first step, I would say we need to raise much more the awareness of policymakers and people generally about the importance of this issue. As I said earlier, this is connected to every single issue that we are discussing today, but we rarely hear about this problem. So when we talk about climate change, we talk about a lot of the issues, but only few uh, will uh, mention the importance of this issue, of who is influencing the different decisions that we are taking. Julio, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We've been speaking with Julio Baccio Terracino, Deputy Division Head of the Public Sector Integrity Division of the OECD Directorate for Public Governance. For more on the OECD's work on influence, go to oecd.org slash gov slash ethics. That's oecd.org slash gov slash ethics. You'll find a list of related subjects and links to publications on the OECD iLibrary. This is OECD on the Level. Thanks for listening.